We are. We're in Genesis 6. Aren't we? It's because we did a chapter and a half last week because of the genealogies. All right. So this is, a, well, all Scripture is important. But this is a, an important section of Scripture, but yet it's also one of the more unusual sections of Scripture uh, that you're going to find. There's, there's, there are different sections of Scripture as you go through the Bible that you read and you go, what? <laughs> right? Like, like having to do with the Moses, Moses' body and, and the things like that that you're reading. Uh, but this is another one of, uh, one of those sections of Scripture that uh, you might be wigged out about. Um, depending on how you've heard it taught or, um, or how you haven't heard it taught. Um, so it requires a little bit of an open mind to, uh, come on, knock it off, to some alternative interpretations, and, and possibly it requires a lot of grace uh, to me uh, if you adamantly disagree with what you're about to hear. Right? So I will do my best to just have Scripture uh, interpret Scripture. This chapter is important for many reasons. Uh, building the ark, for example, which we'll get into uh, later, not today. But uh, but one of the main reasons, of uh, when we're talking about the days of Noah, if you remember, and, and you, we talked about this in September last year, we did, I did a little teaching called the days of Noah. And uh, But remember, Jesus said both in Matthew chapter 24 and in Matthew chapter 17, um, that for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So it's important for us when we get into talking about, and we're in Genesis, talking about the days of Noah, for us to pay attention to what the days of Noah were like, to have a full understanding of exactly what was going on in the days of Noah, so that we have an understanding for the days that we live in. Because <clears throat> the conditions of the world before the coming of Jesus, before the rapture, and without a doubt before, of course, the second coming of Jesus, will be like the conditions of the world before the flood, right, in the days of Noah. So when the Word of God tells you to be aware of the signs of the times, when the Word of God tells you to be aware of the times and the seasons, when the, God's Word says that these times are but the beginning of birth pains, um, that's for your benefit, right? God is telling you, pay attention, be dressed, be ready. Don't be ignorant of what is happening around you in the world. Why? Because you live in, in a time such as this. Because right? you're living in, basically, the days of Noah today. So let's read. We're reading Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for uh, the picture you give us so that we can be aware of the signs and the times that we live in, so we can be aware that we're getting closer to your return. And of course, we know, Lord, that every day we're a day closer to when we'll be caught up in the air. So we thank you for that. We thank you for the hope that's found in that, that even though we live in despicable times, that we live in corruptive and corrosive times, that in the midst of that you are there and that you have a plan and that you are our hope. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we start in the middle, in verse 5, because that's like the swing verse of these verses, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wickedness was exceedingly throughout the whole earth. And every thought that tells us, every thought that man shaped or that man formed, right, was evil. It's, it's a little hard for us to wrap our head around because though we live in dark times, though we live in evil times, right, the church is larger today than eight people. Right? There was only eight people who got on the ark. So, you know, thinking of the population back then, which we'll go about in a minute, it's a little hard for us to think that everybody was so evil. Everybody. Except for Noah and his family. Or Noah. You can debate about his family if you want. Right? So, so every intent of the thoughts of their heart, as it says, always evil. Right? It's sin committed by the mass of humanity. And like I said, it's a little difficult for us to wrap our head around it. We see sin. We see sin in large scales. We see uh, all kinds of immorality and atrocities that, you know, flashed on the news in front of us. But it's not like it's all of humanity. It's sections of humanity. And, it's, and it might be large groups, but it, we're still trying to think about the fact that all of humanity was just evil. It's a little different. And the idea behind it, when you look at these words in the Hebrew, the idea behind it is that it was evil upon evil thought, right? It was one on top of the other, right? Evil piled upon evil, like a garbage dump. They just kept dumping evil on top of evil on top of evil and just kept piling up, right? And later in the chapter, it says that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, right? That the earth had gone to ruin is what that meant. It spoiled like rotten fruit. The entire earth was spoiled. The earth was filled with violence. So then what does Genesis 6 tell us then about why we had this worldwide disease, why we had this worldwide corruption, why everything was... I mean, we know that Adam and Eve sinned and they ate of the fruit. We understand the fall. We understand that how sin is corruptive and how quickly it spreads. But what was it that had gotten so bad? You know, what was the sin 
necessarily that was going on. One of the first things we see in verse 1 is it says that man began to multiply, and that's really an understatement. Uh, you know, this is talking about humankind because man was multiplying fast. We, we've gone over this. It's like 1,600, you know, from creation to the flood, it's 1,656 years. In that time frame, with, with a, you know, the conditions were beneficial to long life. You know, the, the canopy was still there. It hadn't been destroyed yet because the flood hadn't happened. You know, you have these perfect conditions for man to grow in, for man to, to have families in. The average lifespan was somewhere around 857 to 900 years old. And when people are living that long, they have large families. Okay? They just continue to have more and more kids, whose kids continue to have more and more kids, whose kids continue to have more and more. They were taking that order from God seriously. Go ahead and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They did it. Right? In 1,600 years, they filled the earth. And we probably had a population of around 7 billion people, conservatively, at the time of Noah. Could have been even higher. Today, the, the population of the earth is what? 7.8 billion? Or somewhere around there? Anyway. But, so, man was multiplying really fast. And with that, then, what we see next, in verse 2, is now we see sexual perversion sexual immorality, and quite frankly, demonic activity. That's what happens next. And it says in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Right? Now there's a clarification that you have to, that you have to bring out, because it, it specifically right, says sons of God and daughters of man. It doesn't say sons and daughters of man. Sons of God and daughters of man. So some say sons of God is just a phrase that's uh, used to describe the godly line of Seth. And the godly line of Seth, therefore, was mixing with the ungodly uh, line of Cain, the daughters of Cain. Right? Some will teach it that way. So there was this compromise. They were compromising their godly ways and marrying the daughters of Cain. Of course, we understand that one of Satan's you know, most successful devices is compromise. Right? He will delude God's people into abandoning their positions of separation because you know, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And we're supposed to be separated from, from sin. But Satan will have us abandon our fellowship with God, our communion with God, and then he'll lead us into, into sin. So I understand the whole uh, compromise. I understand that position if people want to talk about that the, uh, that the sons of God are, are the, line of, uh, the godly line of Seth. But I, I, it doesn't fit the picture. All right? It doesn't fit the picture that's being talked about here. Something else is going on. So the Hebrew for the sons of God, the Hebrew there is ben Elohim. All right? And ben Elohim in the Old Testament is a phrase that's only used four times. So when we use scripture to interpret scripture, we look to see where that phrase is used in the Bible and how it's translated and what it means. So that phrase is only used four times in the Old Testament, once right here in Genesis, and three times in the book of Job. And every time this phrase is used, it is not used to describe, to describe godly men, as in humans. It's only used to describe angels. Okay? So, for example, Job 2.1, right? It says, again, there was a day when the sons of God, that's their phrase right there, ben Elohim, Right, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So here's a picture from the book of Job. 
referring to the sons of God, one of the three in the book of Job. And every single time it's referring to the sons of God, Ben Elohim is referring to angels. Right? Job 1.6, Job 38.7, you know, you can go do the research. It's angels. So, so much so that when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to the Greek, okay, Septuagint, they translated Genesis 6.2 to say angels of God, okay? The angels of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. That's how they translated it. Now, these weren't angels of the Lord, okay? These were fallen angels. So we have demonic activity going on. <clears throat> it was sexual perversion. It was abnormal, amoral, and immoral activity because amoral is just an indifference or a disregard for morality. And I'm pretty sure I would assume that the fallen angels had absolutely zero regard for morality. So you have fallen angels taking for themselves, <clears throat> you know, wives from daughters of men, any that they chose, right? They handpicked them. Because when it talks about the daughters of men, it says that they saw that the daughters of man were attractive. That means they were just gorgeous. That's what that name means in, in the Hebrew. And so they, they were stunning, okay? So, the, so these fallen angels look upon the daughters of man. They see that they're stunningly beautiful, and they just take them. Whoever they chose, I choose you. You're coming with me. Right? And I don't think that the daughters of man had very little say in the matter, because when you look at the Hebrew word for took, it actually can mean carry away. So the angels, these fallen angels, just chose who they wanted and carried away whoever it was. You're now my wife. Right? And you can say, but angels aren't to marry. Doesn't it say that somewhere in the Bible? Yes, it does. But that doesn't mean angels aren't, are, are sexless. That doesn't mean angels, especially fallen angels, aren't disobedient. Right, they didn't have to pay attention to the, to the hierarchy or the or the order that God had put down for the angels, right? So we know that angels can look human, correct? I mean, two men approached Mary in the garden after Jesus' death and resurrection. She just talked to them like she thought they were men, but they were angels, right? Abraham in, Gen in Genesis eighteen, right, was visited by Jesus and a couple of angels. Abraham didn't know at the time who he was talking to, pre-incarnate Jesus, or the angels. Angels went into Sodom and Gomorrah to take out Lot and his family. The residents, everyone who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, thought the angels looked human because what did they want? They wanted them to come out so we can know them better, right? They wanted to have you know, immoral sexual relations with these angels. Right? So angels can look like humans. Hebrews 13.2 tells us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So you don't even know when you've met an angel. You could have met one, and you wouldn't even know. Right? Because angels can look human. So angels look human. And just because angels aren't to marry, that doesn't mean they're sexless. And of course, like I said, fallen angels weren't about obedience anyway. They weren't about following the rules or what any laws have been set down. They're about the opposite. Right? So, so what is it we have? We have Satan sending his angels, the fallen angels, to intermarry, either directly or indirectly, with human women to do what? To do what? Right? Yeah, to pollute or corrupt the DNA 
of mankind. Exactly. To make the human race unfit, to make the human race unfit for bringing forth the Messiah. Right? I mean, that was his thinking. That was his idea. Right? God had promised the Messiah back in the garden to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium. Right? But the, I mean, but whoa, Satan's thinking, well, the Messiah won't be born from a demon-possessed mother. Right? right? If, if I could succeed in infecting the entire race, the deliverer won't come. I can, I can stop God's plan. That's crazy, right? You're like, that's crazy. That's crazy. Well, let me read you uh, a few more verses. How about we go to Jude, verses 5 through 7. I'd say Jude chapter 1, but there's only one chapter in Jude. So. It, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, well, what angels are we talking about? Fallen angels, right? Angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, or strange flesh, as it says in some translations, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What is he saying in Jude? He's saying that these fallen angels, who are now kept in eternal chains until the judgment of the great day, they indulged in sexual immorality, or gross immorality, as it says in some translations, and they pursued unnatural desires, or like I said, strange flesh, as it says in the King James. Because right? they were having these unnatural relations with the daughters of man. The fallen angels having unnatural relations with the daughters of man. So what did the Lord say about all this? Well, that's what comes next, right? Verse 3, the Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. In other words, what the Lord is saying, judgment's coming. That's what the Lord says, right? Because when it talks about this here, when it says uh, his days shall be 120 years, what some people say is, is that Lord shortened the lifespan of man, right? Right then and there, he said, you know what? Man's not going to live as long as they used to anymore. But that's not actually what he's saying. What he's saying is, from this point, from this declaration, from what I'm saying right now, 120 years from now, the flood's going to come. Judgment's coming. My spirit will not abide with man forever, 120 years, and I'm bringing a flood. I'm bringing a flood to cleanse this earth because of this immorality and, and corruption that I see widespread throughout the entire earth. My spirit is not going to strive with man. It's not going to abide with man. Right? There is a point where God says, enough is enough. Right? I've had it. Right? God is long-suffering. There comes a day when judgment must come. Right? Judgment must fall. There is a point of no return. God is just, and because of that, he must judge. Right? The wrath of God is completely righteous. And he said, guess what? It's coming in 120 years wrath is coming. I look down upon the earth and what I see, I see evil upon evil. Just mountains of evil 
It's terrible. Guess what? My wrath is coming. Judgment was coming in 120 years. But guess what? Those 120 years, those would be 120 years of grace. Right? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he right, wishes none should perish. Yeah, I mean, he looked down at the earth and saw exactly the conditions of what it was, but said, I'm still giving you 120 years. Right? I didn't just wipe you out instantaneously on the spot. I'm giving you 120 years. And in that 120 years, what did he do? He had Noah build an ark. Now, it didn't take Noah 120 years to build an ark. It didn't even take him 100 years to build an ark. Right? But when Noah was building the ark, he was a herald of righteousness. And it probably started before Noah. Right? The prophecies probably started coming back with, from Enoch. And down through the line. That means Noah's grandfather, Methuselah, Noah's father, Lamech, they were all preaching about the righteousness of God, probably. Yet no one was listening. But when Noah was out there building an ark, he was a herald of righteousness the entire time. So he's given the gospel. He's given the good news. He's letting everyone know that will listen to him. Listen, God's judgment is coming. And the only hope for you is right here. It's this ark. It's the only thing that can keep you safe. This is what God told me. You guys want to be on the ark? Right? He's telling this to his own family, to his own relatives. He's telling this to everybody. He's a herald of righteousness. He warned anyone that would listen. Right? It tells us in Ezekiel 18 that the soul that sins shall die. And he was probably telling them something similar to that. Listen, you've sinned against God. And God is bringing his judgment. There's only one hope for you. And then I'm building this ark because God told me to. And they're probably thinking, crazy man on an ark, right? It tells us in Matthew, for example, that the days of Noah, everyone was just going about their business. It talks about the days of Noah. And it says everyone was just going about their business. They were getting married. They were having parties. They are going to the grocery store, stopping by Starbucks. Everyone was just going by and doing everything that they always do. And you look at that and you're like, okay, so what? It's not that big of a deal. Everyone was just going doing what they do. Okay. But that means they were completely ignoring what Noah was doing. If someone was building an ark in your front yard, if someone was building an ark in your neighborhood and telling you that God was coming, could you completely ignore it? Would you start listening? Or would you just drive by every day and not pay attention? <coughs> That's what they were doing. They, just, they had their lives. They continued living their lives. And they completely ignored God's message, and completely ignored right, the only salvation they could have, which was found in the ark. They just ignored him completely. The people wouldn't listen. And then we get to verse 4. You think it was strange already. <clears throat> we haven't gotten to verse 4 yet. We have the Nephilim. Now this picture I have behind me on the screen, if you've seen the Noah movie with Russell Crowe, that's the Nephilim in the movie. Now this movie is pure science fiction. You don't watch this movie because it's biblically accurate at all. You watch this movie hoping just to be entertained by something, but, but that's the Nephilim in the movie. They're giant rock creatures who are actually somewhat sympathetic to Noah. I think they even help Noah's family and, and keep him safe. And for the most part, society likes the Nephilim until they turn against them, and then the Nephilim have to fight for their lives, and they're all 
you know, murdered. I can't remember exactly how. I didn't pay much attention. Like I said, it's, you know, it's a pure science fiction movie. It's not, you're not watching that for biblical truth there. Anyway, so verse 4 tells us that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, hold on to that part, also afterward, what does that mean? Right? When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. So what is that telling us? That's telling us that this demonic, corrupted relationship between fallen angels and the daughters of men produced an offspring. They're called the Nephilim. And Nephilim means giant. Matter of fact, Nephilim is really close to the actual Hebrew word for giant. It's almost like they're saying giant, giant, right? So it's, so, so the, the Nephilim means giant, and it comes from a root meaning fallen one. They're not even really hiding the fact of who they are. Guess what? They're, they're fallen giants, right? They're giants. And they're described as the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And some will just teach that these are mighty leaders and rulers of the day that came from this, uh, you know, when the, when the line of Seth and the line of Cain started intermarrying and stuff, that you had these rulers and, you know, mighty rulers of the day that came from this uh, relationships. And, and that's, who, that's just who the, the Nephilim are, but that's not who the Nephilim are. They're not ordinary men, right? They're not ordinary men. They're extremely violent and strong and skilled at warfare. It says they were feared, right? They're, they're men of renown, which means they were feared and famous for their size and their strength. They were huge, right? They were strange, <laughs> strong giants, right? Giants existed on the earth, it says, in those days. And then it says, and afterward, Right? And you're like, wait, hold on. What do, what do you mean afterward? Because there was a flood. Only eight people came through that flood on the ark, right? There was no giants hanging out on the ark that we know of. Did they hang to the side? Ooh, I'm going to, you know. The, we know giants existed afterwards. Read your Bible. David fought one. His name was Goliath. Yeah, he fought more than one. I'm getting to that in just a second, Eddie. And he's back there going, he, he, he flashing me, he's flashing me numbers, right? Right? It wasn't just David, but David's family and David's, uh, yeah. Let me read you 2 Samuel 21, verses 18 to 22. After this, there was again war with the Philistines. Remember that, Philistines, where the giants are coming from, Philistines. That's going to come in important here in just a second. At Gob. And then Sibachai, the, the Hushatite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair Origen, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. This is a different Goliath, right? The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. I didn't look that up, but I'm assuming that means it's big, right? And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. And these four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. All right, there's some giants for you. This is after the flood, of course. David 
and his and his family and his servants striking, still fighting giants. giants. David was a giant killer, right? He didn't just fight Goliath when he was a little kid. Seems like he had a mission. He was taking out giants all the time. I want to see a movie series based on David attacking the giants. When are they going to get to that? Six fingers, six toes. Listen to the description. Goliath was a descendant, right? The Goliath was a giant who David fought. Goliath was probably over nine feet tall, maybe even over 10 feet tall. I don't have the exact verse, but there's a verse in the Bible that describes the bed that the giants lived in. And when you do the measurements, the thing's huge. It wouldn't fit in your bedroom, right? The giants were huge. But your question, of course, is going to be, well, how did they exist after the flood? Because Moses, when he's putting this down, says, well, they existed afterwards too. How? Right? How did they exist after the flood? Well, of course, if we're talking demonics and, and demons, you know, demons could exist, obviously, after the flood. Right? So there's a couple different ways. One, of course, is demonically. Right? You have, you have more fallen angels after the flood. And when the earth began to repopulate, right, the fallen angels began to do what they had done previously. So you have a second invasion, if you want to call it that, if you will, right? Well, they're doing the exact same thing they did before the flood. Now, that's a possibility. Could be going on. I don't know. Now, the other thought I had was this. You may not like this one. We don't know the lineage of Noah's wife. We don't know the lineage of Noah's daughters-in-law. Daughters-in-law. Daughter-in-laws. Daughter. Anyway, the ladies who married his sons. We don't know their lineage. Right? The descendants of two of his sons, not Shem, right? Because Shem leads to who? Leads to Jesus, right? But Ham and Japheth were prominent figures in the start of such nations as Babylon, Nimrod. Nimrod was a descendant of Ham, for example, and the Canaanites. Also, they uh, started such cities as Nineveh. Nineveh? How bad was Nineveh? There's a reason Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Right? When you study the history of what Nineveh was like, you probably would not have wanted to go to Nineveh either. Nineveh was a terrible city, started by the descendants of Noah's sons. Right? I think it was by Ham. It might have been Japheth. Anyway, also, who came? What group of people came from the descendants of Noah's sons? The Philistines. Philistines came from the sense of Noah's sons. Who came from the Philistines? The giants, right? So the short answer is, of course, we don't really know how giants existed later. There's many possibilities. But also, we don't know that the daughters, you know, that Noah's sons married, or even his wife, for example, that their DNA wasn't corrupted. And therefore, corrupted DNA passed on down, which passed on down, which passed on down, and therefore you have giants again. Okay? Right? Only thing we know, and this is somewhat controversial, is that when you fast forward to verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Right? And that verse can be translated without too much effort from the original Hebrew to say that Noah was pure 
and his genetics. All right? That means the only thing we know for sure is that Noah himself wasn't corrupted in that way. That's the only thing we know for sure. Noah was just a man, right? He was perfect in his generations. That description of Noah, that's unique to Noah himself. No one else gets that description. It not only refers to his righteous life, which was far from perfect, by the way. Right? We know this after the flood, without a doubt. I mean, he was still a sinful man. But yet it would seem that he was possibly untouched right, by Satan's attempt to corrupt the DNA of mankind. It didn't touch Noah. Just something to think of, right? So the Lord looks down and he sees all of this. Right? He sees all of this corruption, all this sexual immorality. He sees all these fallen angels having relationships with the daughters of men. He sees the offspring that comes from that, the Nephilim, which are these giant creatures. And he sees it spreading over the entire earth, whatever the earth looked like at that time, pre-flood. And he sees that everyone, the thought of every heart, of every individual, was sinful. And it was just evil upon evil. And sin and corrupted everything. And it was just terrible. And the Lord says in verse 6 that he regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now whenever we try to apply human emotions to God, it's easy for us to, to start thinking that God does things the way we do things. Right? Does the Lord regret things in the way that we regret things? No. He doesn't, right? right? We think of regret as in wishing we had made a different decision entirely. Right? I wish I didn't eat that whole cheesecake last night. I regret that this morning. Right? The Lord doesn't regret things in, in that way. The Hebrew word is uh, nakam, and it means to repent or to, or to console oneself. And God's regret and his grief, it does not mean that God was hoping for something better, but yet he was unable to achieve it. You know, I tried. It didn't work out. Oh, well, I should have never done it. That's not what God is saying, right? He knew all along how things were going to turn out. But as we read here, it clearly tells us that God, as he watches this plan unfold, it, it affects him, right? God's not unfeeling, in the face of human sin and rebellion. He's not unfeeling. God has emotions. Even, excuse me, even when he knows how things are going to be. Right? Even in his sovereignty. He looks down and he sees man's sin and he's angry. He's grieved. He regrets. Right? It's tough to describe God emotion, God's emotions in human terms. But God was aware of what would happen, and yet, you know, and he also was aware of how it would all unfold. It doesn't mean, though, that God was uncaring or callous or cold-hearted to what he saw, right? God's response was, well, I knew that was going to happen, right? Oh, well. Say la vie. He wasn't that way, right? You know, if you remember, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die. Jesus also knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yet in that moment, when he gets there, after Lazarus has died, 
surrounded by the grief and the anger of his friends and loved ones. Right? Jesus wasn't uncaring or unfeeling either, even though he already knew how things were going to unfold and what was going to happen. What does it say Jesus did? It says Jesus wept. Right? God regretted what he saw. God was displeased and hurt by what he saw. He consoled himself. And then God says, I'm going to blot out man. Right? Here's, here's my answer to this. I'm bringing judgment. I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land. Right? I'm gonna, it means I'm going to exterminate. That's what it means in, in the Hebrew. I'm going to exterminate. I'm, gonna, I'm calling in the exterminator. That's me. Right? And I'm going to come in and I'm going to exterminate man. Judgment's coming, saith the Lord. Right? I've had enough. Judgment's coming. Man's wickedness has to be terminated. Their grotesque and abnormal sin has to be dealt with. Right? God knew that, that there, there could be no delay. It was at that point where he couldn't delay what he needed to do. It just had to be done now. He had given them, you know, at that when the flood comes, he will have given them 120 years to repent. God's patient with us today the same exact way, Right? His judgment's coming. It's still the same. We tell people, Christ is returning. God's judgment's coming. People tell me all the day, we must be in the, we must be in the tribulation. We must be in the end times. I have never seen things like this. And I keep saying, no, we're not there yet. If you think it's bad, you don't want to be there then, right? Because if you think it's bad now, goodness. God's coming. God says he must intervene now. All of humanity is wicked and evil, except, he says, except there's one exception. One exception. Right? Noah. It said, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the first time, if you're taking notes, that's the first time that grace is mentioned in the Bible. Right? Because that's the word for grace. Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, that word in the Hebrew is rooted in a word that means to, to bend down or to stoop towards. Okay? And what it means is that God, in a sense, he steps down from his throne towards man, towards Noah, and he bestows upon him his love. Because when we think of God, and many cultures think this way, God's this unapproachable, powerful force who's always up, right, on his throne, and he would never dare step down from his throne to hang out with mere mortals, right? I mean, you think of the Greeks and the Romans and all the, the you know, weird traditions they have concerning God. There's this hierarchy. God doesn't stoop down towards men. He's above men. You, you got to get to him. He's not coming to you, Right? But when it talks about Noah found grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord, it means that God stepped down from his throne. He stooped down to Noah. He brought himself down to the level of man. Oh, what? Doesn't that sound familiar? Right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we're talking about right there. That picture right there. Think about that. That's grace. Right? That's grace. That's God stooping down, bending down, coming down to man's level. God says, I want to, you know, Emmanuel, God with us. God says, I want to be with you. That's what he did for Noah. Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's what it's about. That's grace. So the human race was so polluted that God found it necessary to start again, but he found it necessary to start again with Noah, right? Noah's family, the eight who would eventually get on the ark, right? First Peter tells us this, First Peter 3. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's an interesting verse because what spirits are in prison? Anyway, you can think about that. Because they formerly did not obey when? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Oh. Well, the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Today we live in the days of Noah. I mean, it's evil upon evil. We can't even keep up with the news, right? And some of us listen to the, you know, the, the reports on a daily basis. There are certain pastors I listen to that put out daily reports now, and they still can't keep up with everything. They talk for an hour, and they've only touched, you know, such a small section of the stuff that's just coming out, that's pouring out, this ridiculousness, immorality, everything that's going on. We live in the days of no, the world's evil. Listen, it's evil upon evil. It's, it's evil being packaged in cute little boxes with brightly colored bows, right, and being sold to your children, right? Disney. It's, it's terrible because Disney now supports the indoctrination of kindergartners, right? They want schools to be able to teach that your five- and six-year-olds about sex. Your five- and six-year-olds about sex. That's what they support, indoctrination. They don't want you to teach them. They don't want the parents to teach them. They, it's okay that the school teachers do it, right? Disney wants to teach your kids about sex. Sorry, kids, right? Their agenda, their agenda is to add this material into their kids' programming, into their shows and their cartoons. They blatantly admitted it this last week. They aren't even hiding it now. They said it was an open agenda. They also kind of slightly you know, with that admitted in the sense there was still hidden agendas, but, you know, this is what they're talking about. They talked about how much programming and how much they wanted this in their programming by the end of the year, by the end of next year, whatever it was. It was something I don't remember now. They wanted like 35% of their programming or whatever to include all this stuff. So they're openly admitting it now. I saw transgender dolls yesterday. They look like cute little girl dolls, dresses, hair, the whole bit, right? Until you buy one for your daughter or your granddaughter or whoever, and they, as kids do, undress the doll. And it has what? Oh, it has male genitalia. I mean, these are just some of the things. I mean, we could do a whole prophecy update right now for another hour. We're not going to do that. The babies found in New York, the aborted babies that just happened this last week. I believe it was New York. It was awful. 
they're trying to figure it out so they can bring charges. But that's becoming more accepted. People are just going about their business and not even looking at this stuff anymore. Because why? Because it's just accepted. This is life. This is how things go. We accept this stuff now. We accept, you know, gender fluidity and all these different things. We accept it. But you know what? Especially considering how they're marketing it towards kids now, so blatantly, it would seem, to young children, younger than our kids here even. This is what Jesus said. He said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If you've ever seen a picture of a millstone, those things aren't small, right? They're huge, and if you were to fasten a millstone around someone's neck and throw them in the sea, it would just rip their head right off. But what's God saying? Saying judgment, right? Judgment is coming for those who cause my children to sin, right? Like, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. When he says, woe, that's not just a slap on the wrist, He's not just saying, oh, knock it off, please. Woe to you. No. He's like, look over your shoulder because I'm coming for you. Right? Judgment's coming. Woe to you who do that. Israel did that, in a sense. I mean, when we talk about Satan corrupting, the corruption of sin and Satan trying to corrupt us. I mean, Satan wants to corrupt you in every way he can, right? He's faithful and he's committed to the destruction of Jesus' return. But also, he also wants to you know, in one way, he, want, he, he wants to corrupt your ability to reproduce Christians. I mean, that's one thing he wants to do, right? He's going to do his best, if he can, right? Sterilize your seed, right? Spiritually and physically, if we want to talk about it, right? He's going to destroy your witness. He'll destroy your home. He's going to destroy your family. He's going to look for the open door to walk in, and he's going to attack a vulnerable family if you let him. Don't give him a seat at your table. Don't even, not even an inch, right? Don't give them a seat at your table. Because that's what Israel did, and they paid for it. Israel, Israel kept compromising with the idolatrous pagan nations around them. They kept you know, falling into that same trap over and over again, and they mixed the ungodly, right? They mixed with the ungodly, and they abandoned their devotion to the Lord. And those same temptations surround us today for us to mix with the culture in which we're surrounded when we're supposed to be separated from it. Oh, it's okay, I'll accept that. It's okay, I'll accept that. It's okay, I'll accept that. Next thing you know, you're way over here in their, in their playground. You're not even in yours anymore. You're not separated. You're living with them. Right? You're not separated. So those same temptations surround us today, that, that, that temptation to conform to the patterns of the world and not be renewed, right? Not be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Those same temptations surround us today. <laughs> If you want a picture of how bad things really are, go read Romans, right? Romans 1, 18 to 32. I'm not going to go over it right now, but that's kind of a picture of how bad it was even in the days of Noah. It's that same way now. But I, but I just want to finish with this before we take communion. And I know I'm going on, and you can just live with it. There, there is hope, right? There is hope. There is hope. Because it tells us in Romans 5, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? 
That's where our hope is. It's in Jesus. The only way anybody can be saved from God's wrath is through grace, right? The grace of God, Jesus. It's the only way. Everyone who has been saved has been saved by grace through faith, including Noah, right? No one was ever saved by bringing a sacrifice or by keeping the law or by doing good works. Merit badges aren't going to save you. Presidential awards won't save you. Medals of honor won't save you. None of that stuff is going to save you. See, our salvation is a gift. It's a gracious gift. It's not a gift that you earned or you were awarded. That would not make it a gift of grace. That would make it a gift of debt, as it were. You cannot earn the grace of God. Grace can only be accepted by faith. Noah accepted that gift by faith. Right? It tells us that in Hebrews 11.7. Right? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right? Noah accepted it by faith. Here's the thing about God's love. It comes from Deuteronomy. It's a really interesting verse. It's Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, but the little, there's just a little section of it. It gives you a picture of why God loves you, right? It says here, it says, It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. He's talking to Israel, right? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from a house of slavery, Right? And, and if you're looking for why God loves you, why, why would God love me? Quit looking for the logic, right? Don't try to reconcile why God loves you. Don't try, just, 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 just accept the truth that God loves you, right? Receive the truth that God loves you. Why does God love you? It's not because you're the biggest. It's not because you're the smallest. It's not because you're the most powerful. It's not because you're the brightest. It's not because you're the dumbest right? It's none of those things. None of those things. Why does God love you? God loves you because he loves you. That's it. God loves you because he loves you. Nothing else. Nothing else. So find favor, right? In the eyes of the Lord. And I'll tell you, in the times that we live in now, do this. Keep your eyes and your Bible wide open, right? Let's take communion.